dares to interrupt Farinata, the Ghibelline leader, who? A Guelph, of course. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. In this podcast, we walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Canto 10, red lines 52 through 72, and we are among the heretics in hell. We have come down this far to the sixth circle of hell, to the world of burning sepulchers, and we have been speaking momentarily with Farinata. Dante the Pilgrim has rebuked Farinata, and then something else happens. Canto 10, lines 52 through 72. Then another shade just beside him rose in the open sepulcher, just visible from his chin up. I believe this one had raised himself to his knees. He looked around me as if he was worried about seeing someone else with me. And when his halfway hopes were dashed, he started crying and said, If it is because of your high genius that you were able to walk through this blind prison, then where is my son? And why is he not with you? I to him, I do not come under my own steam. The one who is with me over there leads me, maybe to someone your Guido held in disdain. His words and the methodology of his pain had already read me his name. This is the reason I gave him a spot-on reply. Straightening up all of a sudden, he wailed, What? Did you say held? Is he no longer alive? Does not the sweet sunlight still fire up his eyes? When he noticed a certain hesitancy I made before giving him an answer, he fell down flat and was no longer visible. Such a strange passage. So odd. Here we were talking to the Ghibelline leader, the former Ghibelline leader, Ferranate de Uberti, and then suddenly up beside him in the same tomb pops up this person, who is wondering about his son. Let's talk about this passage. I want to start by first talking about where we've been. Okay, let's just go down the rings of hell. We start with the first ring, Limbo. I'm not counting the, the neutrals. I'm not counting the dark wood. I'm not counting the mountain and the beasts. I'm not counting the ascent to heaven with Beatrice and Canto II. I'm not counting any of that. I'm just talking with the rings of hell. There's Limbo. Remember, castle, enameled green grass, water springs, brooks, philosophers. Remember all that? Crowds of people, Lucan, all of them standing around Limbo. Then second rung, Lust. Minos, the sure judge, his tail wrapping around, whipping around, making the judgment about what circle you belong in. There were winds blowing fiercely. We saw all kinds of people up on the wind, most of them very austere, classical figures. And then Francesca stopped down out of the wind and spoke to our pilgrim, who fainted. Third circle, gluttony, Cerberus. There was this three-headed dog raking its claws across the gluttons. Chaco sat up and gave a Florentine prophecy. A bit of a prophecy. I say a prophecy because actually Dante's writing this after the events that Chaco narrates. But given that the poem is taking place in 1300, it's a prophecy at this moment, at the poem's fictional dating moment. It's a prophecy of what will happen in Florence. And Chaco falls back. Fourth circle. Avarice, 
Plutus, the great enemy, big boulders rolling around, uh, mostly clerics, cardinals, popes, some clergy rolling these boulders back and forth until they bash into each other. Fifth circle, wrath. Phlegius, his boat, towers, signaling each other, the swamp of sticks, Filippo Argenti coming up, getting across that swamp, the walls of Dis itself, the city of hell, furies on those walls, well, first demons, demons on those walls, then furies on those walls, and then standing there in doubt and faith and faith and doubt, until finally the heavenly messenger opens the gates into the sixth circle of hell, the heretics. And note, no guardian figure, Minos, Cerberus. Plutus, Phlegus, nobody. That's how we've come down amongst the circles. Nobody. Is there something to that? That the heretics have no guardian. Is there a bigger point there? That people need some sort of guardian figure to keep them on the right path. Why is there no one here with the heretics? Maybe there was Medusa. Maybe there was the threat of the Furies. But they're gone now. And they were sitting up on the walls of Dis, not so much blocking the way uh, in the way that Cerberus or Minos or Plutus were, or even Phlegas. They they were threatening from the walls, but then they disappeared. Are they the guardians of this circle? I'm not sure it actually works out that way. It feels to me more as if the gates of Dis open and we walk into the most talky canto we have yet walked into with speakers galore, with Virgil and Dante having a spat, with Ferranata rising up, with him calling forth the question of Florentine strife, who were your ancestors, and now another shade popping up in that exact same tomb, or maybe not popping up, rising up to his knees. Okay, let's talk about the passage itself. Then another shade, it says, just beside him, rose in the open sepulcher, just visible from his chin up. I believe this one had raised himself to his knees. This is Cavalcante de Cavalcanti, a great Guelf leader. He died about 1280. It is possible that Dante the poet never knew him. In fact, it's probable that Dante the poet never knew Cavalcante de Cavalcanti. We'll talk about what the connection is in a minute. But he's a Guelf, a great Guelf leader, a wealthy Guelf leader, ultimately a white Guelf that is of Dante's own party when the Guelphs split into the whites and the blacks. But for our purpose right now, just a Guelf leader. So he's on the other side of Florentine strife from Ferranata. So there's Ferranata standing there imposingly, his brow lifted up, his chest high. There's Ferranata in all of his glory. And then here's this kind of muling figure raised up just so his chin is right at the edge of the sarcophagus. Not a exactly um, a daring, daunting figure. In fact, what he comes off as mostly is a caring father, but we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. The real Cavalcante de Cavalcanti, this man, actually got in a street brawl with Corso Donati. The reason that's important is because Corso Donati is one of the close relatives of Gemma Donati, who is Dante's own wife. This man got in a street brawl with Corso Donati, who is on the other side of political divides. This man is a fighter. He himself has suffered. This shade stands up next to Ferenata on opposite sides of the political divide. And it's hard not to hear the exile theme running here because they're speaking to a pilgrim 
who is the fictional representation of an exile. So it's hard not to hear this thematic running underneath it. There's even more here. His position, Cavalcante's position relative to Farinata, well, it's a cosmic joke that he's just there from the chin up. Uh, Farinata is standing straight, as I said, straight up, and we can see him from the waist up. This guy, we just see his little chin peeking over the top of it. Is it a joke or is it a question of the will? Is Cavalcante's will weak? And that might be the answer. Whereas Ferranata's will is strong, Cavalcante's will maybe is not so great. And the most he can raise himself up is to his knees in this tomb. Let's pass on in the passage. He looked around me as if he was worried about seeing someone else with me. And when his hopes were dashed, he started crying. Notice, this is, you would never think of Ferranata crying. Ferranata is this heroic, practically Greco-Roman statue standing there. And here's this guy, (laughs) like some Muppet with just a head over the edge of the sepulcher, crying. And he said, if it is because of your high genius that you were able to walk through this blind prison, then where is my son, mio figlio ove? And why is he not with you? Let's talk about this for just a second. High genius. What's going on here? Is this sarcastic? Maybe. After all, and this is where we're headed, Cavalcante to Cavalcanti's son is Guido Cavalcanti, a rival poet for Dante. Guido Cavalcante is, in fact, a complicated figure, and I want to talk more about him in just a second. But just know that this father knows that there is a poetic rivalry between Dante and his own son Guido. It is, in fact, only through the reference to Guido in line 63 of this passage that we can actually firmly identify who we're talking about here. When Dante says, maybe to someone your Guido held in disdain, leading me maybe to somebody your Guido held in disdain, that's the moment when we can fix who this is, Cavalcante de Cavalcanti, the father of Guido Cavalcanti. It's A little bit odd, a little bit personal, a little bit secretive, a little bit difficult to figure it out. If Dante hadn't dropped that line, if he just said, maybe to someone your son held in disdain, then you know we would have had an endless discussion as we did with Chaco about who is this and who here's all the different ways that this could be somebody and whose father and whose son are we talking about here? Because Dante drops Guido into the text itself. Now we know who this is, this Cavalcante de Cavalcanti. So he says, is if it's because of your high genius, he seems to recognize a rivalry, perhaps, between his own son and this person, this guy walking through hell. High genius, it refers back early on in Inferno to that opening invocation, which in fact invoked high genius amongst the muses. Here, Cavalcante de Cavalcanti puts the high genius inside the pilgrim. You may find this to be sarcastic out of Cavalcante's mouth, and perhaps it is. Perhaps he's being a little sneering, a little um, passive-aggressive right here, and perhaps he is. But over the course of this poem, Dante the pilgrim will ultimately make the claim that in fact It is his high genius that leads him on. So let's stop and talk about Guido Cavalcanti. His father says 
to the pilgrim. If it's because of your hygienist that you were able to walk through this blind prison, <laughs> how dare you take on a poetic project like this one? Then, and here comes the killer line, where is my son and why is he not with you? Guido Cavalcante oh, is part himself a poet, but also part of the peacemaking efforts of 1266. His father, Cavalcante de Cavalcanti, this man in the tomb, chin up, this guy married his son, Guido the poet, to Farinata's daughter, Beatrice. In an attempt to bridge the Ghibelline-Gelf divide, Guido was married to Beatrice, and we should think of this as completely a political marriage, a marriage in which you're trying to heal over, salve over political factions. Guido Cavalcanti himself is one of the great lyric poets of his day. If it were not for Dante, then Guido Cavalcanti is probably who we would all remember as the great Florentine poet of the 1200s, early 1300s of this time period. He's about 10 years older than Dante. In the Vita Nuova, Dante refers to Guido Cavalcanti as my first friend. In fact, they are mm, rival poets. They send some poetry back and forth between each other, and it becomes clear soon that they are on different tracks. Guido Cavalcanti seems much more secular, much more doubting of any Christianity or any faith, and much more tragic in the vision of his lyric poetry. Our poet, Dante, seems much more, well, comedic and much more Christian and much more about the truth of love. It appears that Guido Cavalcanti from some of his canzone uh, is a very, has a very dire and blackened picture of the human condition and that Basically, the body controls love entirely, that love is not necessarily a spiritual experience. Our poet, Dante, becomes increasingly disillusioned with Cavalcanti's way of seeing love and wants much more to pursue a spiritual as well as physical form of love in his great love, Beatrice <laughs> Portinari, not the one that Cavalcanti married. I know this is very confusing in some ways. But let's just say that, that they start to part company over time, and they part company for rivalry of thematics and for rivalry of poetry. These are both poets of the new style, of the sweet new style, this style that is coming out of Provencal troubadours, that is coming out of the Sicilian school of poetry down in Sicily, where the court is making all kinds of overtures toward Islamic thought, and where the Islamic love poetry is beginning to be practiced inside the court of Sicily. These two strains, the troubadours from Provence and the Sicilian court, combine in central Italy, particularly in Tuscany, and lead to this notion of the new style. When we get up in Purgatorio, we'll be talking endlessly about the new style. Go back earlier and look at the episodes with Beatrice back in Canto 2, and you'll hear me talk more about the new style. But Cavalcanti... He might be considered one of the fathers of the new style. Ultimately, Dante's not going to call him that. He'll call someone else that. But from our perspective out here, away from Dante's rivalry with this poet, we might consider Cavalcanti one of the great innovators of the new style. But there's more to the story than that. 
during Dante's priorate, that is, when he's on, as we would say, the city council, between the 15th of July and the 15th of August, 1300, Dante is prior. He's, we would say, the mayor of Florence, prior. of uh, He's the head prior on the priorate. And Dante himself votes to send his former or maybe still friend Guido Cavalcanti into exile. This Guido is someone Dante exiled. Dante, who is now on the run and suffering the pain of exile. Guido, in exile, catches probably malaria. The next city council, as it were, of Florence invites him to return from exile, but he never makes it back. And Guido basically dies in exile. In other words, Dante, the pilgrim, and the poet behind him, is face-to-face with factionalism that has caused the death of his own friend at his own hand. Let's move on to the next bit of the passage. Dante says to Cavalcante, I do not come under my own steam. The one who is with me over there leads me, pointing to Virgil, maybe to someone your Guido held in disdain. Now, let me just tell you that line 63, maybe to someone your Guido held in disdain, is possibly the most controversial line in all all of comedy. It's controversial because the grammar of the Italian is convoluted, because the pronoun reference are not clear, because the line is garbled grammatically, and because it's difficult to figure out who it is that Guido held in disdain. And I don't want to get into the translation problems of this line. It would take us way down into the weeds. And believe me, there are people who have spent their entire life as a Danteist, essentially on line 63 of Canto 10 of Inferno, of trying to figure out how this line works and how it works in the poetry and what the answers are. But basically, here, here is an, a way too simple explanation. To someone, it leads me to someone your Guido held in disdain. Essentially, there are two answers, Virgil or Beatrice. In other words, he's either saying the guy over there leads me and to someone and he's in other words he's making a reference to Virgil himself that is to someone your Guido held in disdain and Guido held in disdain epic poetry and this Roman style of poetry as a founder of the new school of lyric poetry maybe it could be there's no Virgilian element in Guido's poetry even to denounce Virgil so it's kind of odd Maybe to someone your Guido held in disdain, maybe Dante's, our Dante's Beatrice. That is, that Guido was just kind of undone, Guido the poet, was undone with our poet's unbelievable and overwhelming and overarching love for Beatrice. And given Guido's rather checkered look at human nature, he just couldn't stand Dante at his great, almost divine love for Beatrice. Maybe. It could also maybe be a reference to God, because there are commentators running around who claim that Guido was essentially an atheist. And so to someone your Guido held in disdain, maybe it's a reference to God, but it's weird. If it's if it is a reference to God, it's not phrased the way you would traditionally think a reference to God would be phrased in the Florentine. It's a little off. But what I want to say is this. 
When the pilgrim responds, I do not come under my own steam. The one who is with me over there leads me maybe to someone your Guido held in disdain and garbles the logic of the line. My translation there is interpretive. By translating it the way I did, I've automatically set it up that it's probably Beatrice. But again, I just want to tell you that my translation is as much interpretive as it is anything. By garbling the line, <laughs> we are having an example of Dante not being a poet. I think the line is garbled because Dante the poet is telling us that Dante the pilgrim who is speaking this line is not yet a pure-voiced poet. And in this passage, which is about factionalism and poetry, I know that sounds weird, factionalism and poetry, the pilgrim, in fact, gets things wrong and can't speak right. And before we move on, let me just make one more point about this. The next tercet, his words, then the methodology of his pain had already read me his name. That's how it stands in the Florentine, had already read me his name. Remember, I've been going on and on about these references to art, and I've been talking about, hey, art's in the passage, and Fedonata, your, your, your kith and kin didn't even learn this art of how to return, and, and the art of a smithy's forge earlier than that amongst the heretics, that the tombs were so hot, hotter than you would need iron to be in any forge. And I kept talking about art. Art is coming up. And now we have this reference. His words and his methodology of his pain had already read me his name. I knew who he was because of who he was talking about and because of where he is. Apparently, Dante thinks that Cavalcante is a heretic. And so, you know, I already knew who he was and I could read it, but read it. This whole thing has is now we've come down to the middle of the canto of the heretics, the middle of Canto 10, and we've reached a place where factionalism has invaded poetry and art itself. And in fact, here is a poet that our poet put into exile. So we have come to a place where art itself is subject to factionalism. You don't think humans divide into tribalism even over art? It is the way it goes. And it doesn't surprise me that there are references to art throughout this, but that get even more complicated. Last bit of the passage. Straightening up all of a sudden, he wailed. What? Did you say held? Is he no longer alive? Does not the sweet sunlight still fire up his eyes? All right, this tells us two things. One, the dating of the poem is in fact the year 1300, not when it was written, but when this journey is allegedly taking place because Guido's going to die just a few months after the alleged date of this journey. By the time Dante's writing this, Guido Cavalcanti is already dead. But here, he's not dead, as we will see in the next passage, and but the father is concerned that he might be. And so he latches onto this word held. Someone, remember back in line 63, someone your Guido held, the word is ebe, someone held in disdain. So the father latches onto that and says, essentially, oh, oh my God, did you use a past tense? Someone Guido held 
in disdain. So, so he's not holding it in disdain anymore. He's dead. Is he no longer alive? Does not the sweet sunlight still fire up his eyes? You should know this is a glancing reference to the Aeneid book three, lines 310 through 312. It's very clever. Dante the poet is even weaving a Virgilian reference into this passage about poets who are creating a new style that is not necessarily the epic style, but the sweet new style about love in a kind of more commonplace and vernacular language. Wow, but again, misinterpretation. The father has misinterpreted the pilgrim because the pilgrim can be misinterpreted because those lines are garbled, because in fact they're not stated clearly, and because the tense ebbe of held is very difficult. There are dissertations written on the tense of that verb held, ebbe. And <laughs> let me say that it's difficult and not clear, and that seems to be the point. The pilgrim has muffed it. And we can hear, right here, the palpable ring of guilt. What? Did you just say held? Is he no longer alive? Does not the sweet sunlight still fire up his eyes the father so badly wants to know? And you can feel right behind that the guilt the poet must feel at having exiled his own first friend because of political conflicts and maybe because of poetic rivalry too. In other words, Dante has come face to face not with factionalism as a historic event, not with factionalism a la Farinata, not with factionalism as in the Battle of Monteperti, all happening before our poet was born, not that, but instead he's come face to face with what he himself has done. And furthermore, having exiled the great poet Guido Cavalcante, our pilgrim is not able to make clear sense because his language is not straightforward. In fact, it seems like here that misinterpretation is the key to heresy. It leads us to two things, <laughs> to a strange postmodern moment that language itself may not be a trustworthy medium. Because if the father can misread our pilgrim and wonder if his son is alive or dead, then language itself is a rather untrustworthy medium for human love, affection, for humanness itself. That's a strange postmodern position to put yourself in as a poet, just to doubt the medium itself. Or there may be another way of saying it. Is it that the poet is showing us that the pilgrim, still caught in Florentine factionalism, is not yet capable of handling language properly? That the pilgrim himself, so sunk down into Ghibelline and Guelph conflict here in the Canto 10 Among the Heretics, so sunk down that he cannot make sense of language itself and so has not yet gotten to a place where he could be a proper poet. Notice how it ends. When he, Cavalcante, noticed a certain hesitancy I made before giving him an answer, once again, language fails. 
I had the pilgrim can't seem to come out with the right words to answer these questions. Is he no longer alive? Did you say held? Does not the sweet sunlight still fire up his eyes? He fell down flat, thus denying the resurrection. Or how is this <laughs> that he is, in fact, reenacting his own death and was no longer visible? If Guido's dead, then the father's mm, terrestrial immortality is gone. If his son is gone, then the father's terrestrial immortality is gone. And the father falls down flat as if there is no resurrection, as if he couldn't pull himself back up, supine, straight on his back, and he's gone. So this canto of the heretics has moved from a place in which Virgil and Dante have a little spat about who's hiding what from whom, to a giant question of Florentine factionalism, to the guilt of the poet's own hand. Let me say three general observations as a conclusion. One, in the New Testament book, Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 17, Paul, St. Paul, gets questioned in Athens by the Stoics and the Epicureans about this new belief, Christianity. And in fact, when Paul gets questioned by the Stoics and the Epicureans, he has various answers you know, about how this works. But if we just look at this passage and the passage before it, we may see a bit of that here. After all, Ferenata is exhibiting a mm, classically Stoic attitude, that he does not care about suffering, that suffering is beneath his mental capacities, and he doesn't even notice it, whereas Cavalcante is much more exhibiting an Epicurean or human emotion-driven humanity. And when St. Paul is questioned by the Stoics and the Epicureans about this new faith of Christianity, we may have an echo of that in this passage with Cavalcante and Ferenata, or I should say it the other way around, with Ferenata and Cavalcante. Ferenata is the Stoic, Cavalcante is the Epicurean. Here inside this passage, it may be running as a structuring device here in Canto 10. Okay, two. Boethius's consolation of philosophy. Remember that? We were on that forever with the goddess Fortune, and we had that entire sermon by Virgil about the goddess Fortune who controls this sphere. Well, what I want to say about it is not necessarily about the goddess Fortune. I want to just talk about the book for a second, The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. What the book does is um, this figure is in prison, Boethius, in the, the version of himself. Well, in truth, in, the, in, in life he's in prison, but the version of himself he presents is in prison. He's despairing. Dame philosophy comes and basically educates him on that one should not despair at the fortunes of this world. But how it works inside the constellation of philosophy is that poetry and philosophy are constantly interchanging each other. You have these beautiful poems about the creation of the world, about the heroics of certain classical figures. They're set throughout the text. And then the text itself is much more the discussion of philosophy and what you can glean from not being subject to the whim of fortune itself and other things beyond that. What I just want to say is that perhaps running behind this too is Boethius's consolation of philosophy because here we have politics or in Boethius's case, philosophy, but here politics fused to poetry. This 
uneasy movement from Ferdinata and Monteperti to Cavalcanti and Guido Cavalcanti, and then now we're going to go back in the next episode back to Ferdinata. This uneasy divide that happens between them, maybe something that Dante even is picking up from places like the Constellation of Philosophy. That is, that poetry and mm, other thoughts, poetry and philosophy, poetry and politics, poetry and theology, poetry and political structure, poetry and sociology, they're not antithetical, but that they can be woven in and out of each other. And in these poetic passages, we are weaving a poetic rivalry amongst a political rivalry in ways that may be modeled in Boethius's Consolation of philosophy in the way that that text weaves poetry and philosophy together. And finally, my last point. I've been reading Peter Tuch's monumental study of Dante, just titled Dante, that was just published. Uh, Peter Tuch is the Dante scholar, Dante scholar emeritus at University College London. And it is a monumental and exhausting and exhaustive study of Dante. But what I want to say about it is something that has absolutely blown me away. That is Tuke's notion that Dante wants to create in his work an object of contemplation. Tuke's claim is that the basic motivation for Dante is generosity, that Dante sees the world as a busy place full of busy, harried people. He's getting this particularly from the convivio and the banquet, but he's bringing it forward into the comedy, and I think it works. He sees the world as a place in which people do not have time for contemplative life. Rather, everyone is running about leading an active life. And Dante wants to say, look, the real heart of the matter is found in the contemplative life, in the moment in which you can sit down and think about a passage of poetry and sit with a little bit and just hear it. And so Dante is trying to work out a world in which the busy, active people, you, me, can settle for a moment on poetry as an object of contemplation. And we can hold that object for just a moment before we return to, well, checkbooks and oil changes and whatever else we return to in our lives. And that that attempt to offer us a quiet spot to contemplate is for Dante an act of overarching generosity in Tuke's thesis in this attempt to create a small space in which busy modern people can experience the contemplative life. And surely that's what we're doing on this podcast. We are taking moments out of our lives and we're sitting here on a text doing what monks used to do with text, sitting on them, thinking about them, covering them, offering various interpretations of them, pulling ourselves in and out. And no text is so much worthy of contemplation as these right here amongst, oddly, the heretics. It's a curious arc that's going on here with poetry and politics and human factionalism and questions of whether the pilgrim is in fact even ready to be a poet. All of that sitting back behind the text. One more time. Canto 10, lines 52 through 72. 
Then another shade, just beside him, rose in the open sepulchre, just visible from his chin up. I believe this one had raised himself to his knees. He looked around me as if he was worried about seeing someone else with me. And when his halfway hopes were dashed, he started crying and said, If it is because of your high genius that you were able to walk through this blind prison, then where is my son? And why is he not with you? I to him, I do not come under my own steam. The one who is with me over there leads me, maybe to someone your Guido held in disdain. His words and the methodology of his pain had already read me his name, and this is the reason I gave him a spot-on reply. Straightening up all of a sudden, he wailed, What? Did you just say held? Is he no longer alive? Does not the sweet sunlight still fire up his eyes? When he noticed a certain hesitancy I made before giving him an answer, he fell down flat and was no longer visible. This has been a long and difficult episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you stuck with me through it. I hope you got here at the end of it because, wow, this is a tough passage. And it's going to get a little tougher because we're going to go right back to Farinata. Don't forget, Cavalcante may have fallen back into the tomb flat on his back, but Farinata is still standing right there from the waist up. Our Greco-Roman statue still looking at us this whole time. We want to talk about that. We want to talk about how the Cavalcante episode works into the middle of the Farinata episode. We got to get out of the Farinata episode in the next podcast episode to do that. So subscribe, like, link up with me on Twitter. Use the hashtag Walking with Dante. We can find each other there. We can talk more about Dante there. Or look at the Facebook page, Walking with Dante. There's a page there. You can drop comments or go to my website, MarkScarborough.com. There's a lot of ors. Who could stand all these ors? Go to my website, MarkScarborough.com. You can drop comments right there. We can have a chat right on my website in the comment feature on each episode. In any way you connect with me, I want to connect with you and I want you to come back. Because fair enough to stand in there and listen, that jerk has got to have the last word. Check out the next episode of Walking with Dante.